Welcome to Recovery, a new series from the Anthill Podcast, brought to you by The Conversation. I'm your host, Annabelle Bly. Lockdown restrictions that were imposed to stop the spread of coronavirus around the world are beginning to ease. And we're now looking ahead to the next phase, the recovery. History tells us that rebuilding after a shock like this won't be easy. But previous recoveries can offer us lessons about what's possible and how huge the changes ahead may be. In recovery, we're going to explore how the world recovered from major crises. In each episode of this six-part series, we'll focus on a major event from history and look at what happened next with a panel of academic experts who have researched this in depth. In this first episode, we're starting with how the world recovered from one of history's worst epidemics. The Black Death was the name given to the bubonic plague that hit Europe in the late 1340s. Estimates of the number of people who died from the disease vary significantly, but they are all big, ranging from a third to half of Europe's population. The disease spread via trade routes from Asia, And today we know the plague was caused by a bacteria that could travel through the air from person to person, as well as through the bite of infected fleas and rats. It gave people swellings on the body which weeped pus and blood, followed quickly by fever and death. By the mid-1350s, the severity of the plague had died down. In part, this was because it had infected so many people already, but it was also due to the invention of quarantine. Venetian officials tried to contain the plague by keeping sailors in isolation until they could prove they weren't sick. Sailors were held on their ships for 40 days, which was known as a quarantino in Venetian law. But many cities never fully recovered, including London. The plague resurfaced there roughly every 20 years for the next three centuries culminating in the Great Plague of London in 1655. With each new plague epidemic, 20% of the men, women and children living in the English capital were killed. In this first episode of Recovery, we are exploring the immediate aftermath of the Black Death and what the very long recovery looked like in the decades to come. To discuss this further, we've got Adrian Bell, Chair in the History of Finance at the University of Reading's Henley Business School. Hello. We've also got Mark Bailey, who's Professor of Late Medieval History at the University of East Anglia. Hello. And Eleanor Russell, a PhD researcher at the University of Cambridge. Hello. So, Adrian, we're going to start with you to talk us through the immediate aftermath of the Black Death. As I mentioned in the introduction, there wasn't an exact ending point, but what was the government's response in terms of trying to deal with it in the late 1340s? So yes, it was a, a long period of suffering from the, the Black Death from about 1348 to about 1351, the fir- as you mentioned, the first phase. And the thing to keep in mind is that the population of, if we talk about England specifically just for now, it, it was reduced from perhaps around 5 million to under 3 million. So there had been a huge shock. And I think it shouldn't be underestimated just what effect having the loss of, let's say, up to 50% of a population would have on on the general populace. So I think amid the immediate aftermath would be um, quite shocking. You can imagine there would have been elements of PTSD in the, in the population, something they wouldn't have understood at the time. 
but definitely people would have been extremely affected by it. Economically, people then people who are listening to this podcast will have read a lot about how actually it was better. You know, life was better after after this pandemic, and that seems extraordinary for us to say if you keep in mind the number of people who died. And that's because we need to think about the context of overpopulation. So it is argued that the, especially Europe, Western Europe is overpopulated before the Black Death comes along. And that would have meant that people would have struggled to eat. Also, between England and France, there's a huge um, and long-lasting war, which will go on to be called the Hundred Years' War, but at the time has, has lasted at least about 13 years. So these sorts of elements are coming together, which meant that life wasn't brilliant before the Black Death. So people now argue actually going after the Black Death, then life would have been better in some way. Was there a point where things got back to normal or was it just such a big event that that there was that it was just a completely new normal? <laughs> yeah, I think to begin with, um, people would have struggled to, I mean, remember they have to harvest the food annually and manage that process. So to begin with, a lack, lack of manpower would have meant there would have been a difficulty to manage those immediate harvests. So people may have gone hungry to start with. There would have been people stealing food, for instance. You even hear about people stealing clothes off corpses because people were so desperate. So to begin with, there would have been quite a, a, a large reaction. As time goes on, with a population halving, it sounds also strange to say, but output once output comes back, then you could imagine the GDP would increase. So in a sense, if output remains around the same or just a little bit less than it was before, but actually the population has halved, the, the output per person is much higher. Food would be much easier to come by. People would get stronger. So people would actually have, a let's say, a better standard of living in those very basic terms. And we can see that from skeletal remains. Skeletal remains after the Black Death were generally stronger and, and more healthy. And also people could find they could charge more for their daily uh, wage. So people were paid by the day. Immediately following the Black Death, obviously there's a big demand for labour because of so many people have died. And then people will be able to move around the countryside and charge more for their time. And that's when it gets complicated because that's when the government becomes involved and tries to restrain this type of supply and demand economics in the interests of vested interests. What was the, the government response to all of this? So they passed a law, it's very famous, it's called the uh, Statute of Labourers from 1351 and says that the daily wages are actually fixed and can't be uh, broken. Um, and also people are not allowed to move, so people are fixed in where they, where the parish or the manor in which they live, they're not allowed to move in very basic terms. So that means that people are not able then to make the most of these um, opportunities to move around um, for higher wages, to work on someone else's land, the next door farmer's land, who is willing to pay more than their current place where they lived. So that's an immediate sort of reaction for the government on behalf of the landowners to quell that, uh, the workers trying to actually gain more for their time, let's say. So this is the English government intervening in terms of managing the economy in this way. How sort of significant was that? Can you kind of paint a picture of their involvement in sort of economic affairs before this time? Well, I think before this, I think it was very much, you'd probably find more of a, as though it wouldn't understand at the time, it would be a laissez-faire attitude. After this, you'd get them... Uh, the government micromanaging both economy and society. They'd even, people know about these things called sumptuary laws, where people actually said that the um, people couldn't buy clothes 
of a higher status than what they were because people have more money and were able to buy more fancy clothing and 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 that was then um, illegal because people didn't like it you get commentaries you get poets and and chronicles talking about the greedy laborers laborers getting a bit above themselves wanting more than they deserved for their work and really they're in a good great position because they could actually earn more because the landowners need the harvest and before the black death they were farming very marginal land so they were pushing into the margins of what was possible because of this huge population afterwards you could retreat from that marginal and a much more productive land could be farmed and so it's much easier to feed the population in that way and laborers knew they were so in demand they could charge more i might just bring mark bailey in at this point because mark i know a lot of your research builds on on this idea that the Black Death played an important role in the end of of serfdom and kind of the old feudal system. Can you sort of ex- explain exactly what was going on in relation to that? Yes, certainly. The thing that fascinates uh, historians about, about the Black Death and indeed economists is that you get the same demographic shock. You said that 30 to 50% of the population across the continent die. Same demographic shock, but there are very different socioeconomic outcomes from one region to another, both in the medium and in the long term. And why should that be? Adrian's just touched upon one, a sort of increase in state involvement, the the notion that the state should intervene at times of national crisis to direct social policy, albeit highly inequitable. But in England, state authority is enhanced, so much so that it's effectively establishing the rudimentaries of the poor law system and labour legislation right down to the sort of 18th and and 19th century. But, But that's not guaranteed. State authority cracked in the late 14th century in Ireland and in in Wales. Ireland becomes much more more lawless. And elsewhere, the state remains rather weak in Europe. So one of the, the sort of main elements of modernity, which is the growth of the strength of the state and its authority and its willingness and ability to intervene in economic and social policy occurs in England, but not in in other parts of of Europe. The second point that you made was the decline of serfdom, which disappears in England in the second half of the 14th century. But in other parts of Europe, it either is unaffected by the Black Death, it neither strengthens nor withers. Um, And in others still, it's likely that serfdom was strengthened after the Black Death, as law attempted to do what Adrian described English government is doing, which is forcing labourers to work on terms that, that actually inverted the laws of supply and demand. And lords would do that because it was in their interest to force serfs and labourers to work for them on terms favourable to lords, and when the economic circumstances certainly weren't favourable to lords because there was a, a, a shortage. So again, same demographic shock, very different outcomes. I mean, it's very interesting that you've got kind of two very different responses. And I wonder if it's possible to say, you know, the the places that reverted back to serfdom versus those that kind of moved on from a feudal system, did one recover better than the other? Or how did they look different? Well, what is clear is is that there is differences in wealth per head after the Black Death. So wealth per head in England rises 
in the late 14th century and continues to rise subsequently. And a gap begins to open up with levels of wealth per head in Spain, uh, in southern Europe. Wealth per head falls after the Black Death in in Ireland and and in Spain. And it's not entirely linked to to whether serfdom stays or goes, but it is part of of a complex mix. And what you're getting is the first steps towards a gap between northwest Europe and the rest of Europe in terms of wealth per head. In England, you get a swing as a serfdom declines, you get a swing to manufacturing and to commercial livestock production uh, away from a sort of, of, of grain monoculture. In England, you also get a swing towards greater contractual rigour, both in the labour market, because that's what the Statute of Labourers was intending to do. It was tightening and sharpening contractual arrangements in the hired labour market and skewing it in in favour of of lords. But there's also a a significant growth in contractual rigour in tenures and the terms of holding land in agriculture as well in England, whereas you get the proliferation of old feudal, as you described it, feudal and service tenures based on coercive lordship in other parts um, of Europe. So all of the things that we associate with with modernity, the growing role of the state, the disappearance of serfdom, increasing wealth per head, swing to manufacturing away from grain, grain production, but also the use of, of contracts in determining how you hold land, how you work in labour and a legal system that can uphold those contracts and, and serve as a form of dispute resolution are all beginning to take shape uh, in the decades after the Black Death uh, in England. There was one other thing I wanted to to bring in and ask you about, Mark, which was sort of specifically in relation to the ability to recover from the Black Death. And, and that was this, this issue of the, the climate at the time and the fact that it, it was a period of, of sort of weird climate change. Um, is that right? Yes, we, we now know that there is a sig- significant change in, in the global climate from the late 13th century, um, and it coincides with um, a period of um, significant cooling um, in the 1330s, 1340s, um, which just happens to be around the time of, of, of the Black Death. And one of the things that um, historians are just waking up to, and it, it, it helps that climatologists are informing our understanding of past climates, is the extent to which the weather was extreme around the time of the Black Death. So the period between 1346 and 52 was one of the wettest periods of the last millennium. It was also one of the coldest. The summer of 1361 was one of the hottest of the last millennium. The winter of 1362 was one of the coldest. There were then animal moraines in the late 1360s and significant harvest failures due to drought at the end of the 13th. Uh, what is going on? There's extraordinary fluctuations 
in the climate or in the weather reflecting significant climate change. And some historians are arguing that the first shift towards the Little Ice Age occurs during the middle of the 14th century. And the extent to which you get these extraordinary uh, weather events in the 20 to 30 years after the Black Death, well, I think we've significantly underestimated how that added to a sense of turbulence, of uncertainty, of volatility, uh, and also fear, because of course, extreme weather events were regarded as further portents of divine anger. Yeah, so we're doing the series because of the coronavirus crisis going on today. We don't want to draw parallels where they don't exist. But I guess it's just interesting how there's this whole other factor going on at that time. And obviously, today, climate change is a massive issue going on and will affect the global economy in the years to come. But to return to the late Middle Ages, you've talked about how the Black Death kind of accelerated existing trends and was this sort of turning point on the road to modernity as well as the sort of end of of serfdom in northwest europe what were the other kind of big trends going on we've covered a, a, a number of them perhaps one more just to just to mention is there is a belief among historians and economists that the shortages of labor after 1349 and the persistence of epidemic disease created greater opportunities for women's work and it's argued that women began to operate more as independent economic agents, seeking work perhaps in servanthood, um, but also in a range of other activities such as brewing. Um, And in doing so, were choosing to either delay marriage or not marry at all. And this economic stimulus has been linked to a significant shift in household formation and marriage patterns. And it is argued that the particular set of economic and social responses, certainly in Northwest Europe, to epidemic disease over uh, the second half of the 14th century, resulted in smaller families and fewer children, if you like, began to depress fertility and created opportunities for women as economic agents and effectively created the, 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 the dominance of the nuclear household. And that has implications for human knowledge formation and capital formation, that you can train children to be sort of efficient and effective and productive contributors to the workforce. And the household has decent disposable incomes because it, it's practising fertility restraint and that gives households purchasing power so they buy more manufacturers so you can see that in a range of ways it's possible that the black death sets in train a number of demographic and economic changes that reinforce this drive to modernity and indeed another key feature of the sort of post-industrial world, which is the, the nuclear family, which it's argued emerges in Northwest Europe in the late 14th century. That sort of leads us fairly nicely onto Eleanor Russell and the research that you're doing into the rise of wealthy entrepreneurs during this period, which is, I understand, a relatively less studied part of the sort of post-Black Death period. Could you 
explain how they fit into the mix. I guess it was what Mark was saying about the kind of rise of the family that made me think of some of your research on how to get the rise of these sort of wealthy families. Uh, yes. So I think often when people talk about the Black Death and how afterwards there's a sudden growth of, of capital, of wealth for everyone else, that can give the impression that that redistribution of capital was even, and it wasn't. Actually, what we see is a concentration of wealth into the hands of a few families. And as Mark was saying, with the rise of the nuclear family, people become more interested in making sure that their money goes to their children. So wills start changing. Actually, people just start having wills at all. Previously, it hadn't been particularly common to have wills, although, of course, wealthy people had. But people start changing their wills to make sure that the vast majority of their income goes to their children, particularly to their sons. So you get a concentration of capital in the hands of a narrowing number of wealthy families. Those families get their wealth and increase their wealth through the various methods that Adrian and Mark have been talking about, through investing in some of these new technologies and in benefiting from the booming demand for manufacturers that are developing in this period. Right. Um, could you talk us through what some of those technologies were at the time? Okay, so the large labour supply in the pre-plague era had meant that people used people. But afterwards, there were all these new technologies that were starting to be developed that people hadn't really started to invest in because they were expensive and because Previously, you could just hire a lot of people, but suddenly there's a shortage of people. And so they start turning to new technologies, which are largely in the textile industry. So technologies for cloth weaving, for fulling, so for processing the cloth. And lots and lots of windmills had been created around this period, and they really start taking off as more viable alternative than manpower. So in Italy, new measures come in for spinning and weaving silk new looms, new spinning machines. And these didn't require the same number of people, given that those people were no longer available. But what they did require was an extensive supply of money up front. And that's something that most people didn't have and gave huge opportunities for the few families that actually did have that sort of money. Right. So it was only the people who already had a lot of wealth who could then invest it. It wasn't like there was suddenly banks giving out loans to do this kind of investment? Actually, particularly in Italy, a lot of these companies actually were banks at the same time as they were merchants. People tended to dabble in both. There were banks giving out business loans, but you had to prove that you were able to pay it back. So that restricted the number of people who were able to take advantage of these opportunities. And my understanding is that as you've got this rise in wealthy entrepreneurs, their influence over government affairs increases as well? Yes, that's a trend that exists before the Black Death, but really increases afterwards. In England, there's a shift towards governments extending their authority further over people's daily lives. And they do that in partnership with companies. The government does not yet really have the infrastructure to extend its control over all areas. So they tend to, you could almost say, privatise certain areas. So for example, the wool customs, so the tax upon wool being exported from the country, had for a very long time actually been managed by private companies. And after the Black Death, that trend 
continues, indeed accelerates, as the government relies more and more upon these companies because those companies are getting bigger, are getting more capable, and because the government's relying upon them for loans. So in in terms of, I guess, lessons for today and the way that we're liable to see the concentration of wealth and rising inequality off the back of coronavirus, are there any obvious lessons from the period? I think what we can see is that it's much easier for large companies to take advantage of rapidly changing situations and what might look like complete chaos. So some of the really large companies today, such as Amazon, for example, have actually been doing quite well because they've got the resources, they've got the supply of people, and also they've got existing relationships with governments that they can use even though everything else has changed. It's very difficult, as we've seen, for small companies to rapidly transition to working in this new normal. I wouldn't necessarily say whether or not it's a good or a bad thing. I think think people have very strong opinions about that. But I think it's certainly, there are certainly strong parallels between the two periods in that larger companies have an easier time making the change. Adrian, I might bring you back in because I know you, well, I I know all of you as kind of specialists in in this period of history have been getting media requests to talk about what are the parallels with today? What lessons can we learn? And I guess maybe it's worth adding a word of caution in terms of, you know, what actually are the parallels or what are there sort of false parallels being made? Yeah, you know, as historians, we're always trying to to learn from the past and think about how this can help us deal with the current um, situation. I think the Black Death versus the current pandemic are so different that it's very hard to draw out anything that we can really be helpful. Why is that? And I'm thinking it, it more and more is because what we're actually dealing with now is the results of a lockdown. So the, the main thing that they, they didn't do in, in, in medieval times, you talked about quarantining ships but there was no lockdown. So essentially, didn't, they didn't have that power as a government to lock down their, their people. And they didn't have the wherewithal. They didn't have the economic might to pay all their workers to do nothing for the period of that uh, when they were locking down. So a lot of the things which we're now trying to work out as we're coming, trying to emerge from the lockdown, is where are these parallels to help us with this? And, and really, it's, it's, a, it's quite dangerous for historians to say this, but there aren't any because we've never done these lockdown situations before. And perhaps we, we might think about whether there's a good reason for that. But that's the big thing about this. So the pandemic in, in the Black Death, it killed absolutely huge amounts of people. But as we've mentioned, in terms of the economic, as Mark mentioned, in terms of the economic situation in some countries, the actual output per person went up. Whereas now, if you look at a direct parallel, the, the population's not been affected. People have died and it's been tragic, but, but the population's not been affected at large. And yet the economic output, the forecasts we're getting are absolutely horrendous. So in a sense, the GDP picture, in, in the medieval times, you can look at a positive GDP picture, whereas now we're looking at a very negative picture. I might throw that open to the floor if anyone wanted to, to comment. Yes, can I chip in? Please. I think Adrian's right to be cautious about drawing parallels. 50% of the population died and it kept coming back. It, it is very different. However, I think there are a couple of things that are perhaps worthy of comment for parallels. The first is that after the immediate first epidemic, in some sectors of the economy, there were rapid responses 
So demand was changing quite rapidly and supply could change quite rapidly too, as long as they were sectors of the economy where there was low skilled and low capital needed, um, given the nature of it at the time. And yet there are other sectors of the economy that that responded much more sluggishly. And one of those sectors was the grain sector. And the government intervened to try and protect the status quo ante for grain producers, particularly landlords. And in some ways, they were slowing down the pace and the flexibility of the economy to respond. And that actually built up unrest in the population. The second thing is the way in which I think living through COVID-19 underlines this strongly. Living through the lockdown, we're wondering what is the economy going to be like in 12 months time, let alone 12 years time? How am I going to respond to it? And after the Black Death, we can now get a sense of how people were thinking when faced and surviving with with this epidemic. And there is evidence that they saw rewards that were immediate rather than going for uh, long-term rewards, certainly in terms of investment decisions, where to work, what to work. In other words, in, in conditions of economic uncertainty and turbulence, there is a tendency for consumers to behave slightly irrationally. Their decision-making perhaps becomes less sensitive to obvious economic stimuli and might be more directed by emotional uh, decision-making, which is not economically rational and which might prioritise immediate rewards rather than distant rewards. I think I just had a point about just the previous question about seeing parallels in that when we look back, we tend to look at this period, anything before I think around 1600, from a very long perspective. So when we talk about the ramifications of the Black Death, we often talk about the Peasants' Revolt, which was in 1381. So that's several decades after the Black Death, whereas now we are looking forward and we feel like we're living in 10-week chunks. So I think that's one of the really big dissonances between looking back, especially as a historian, and the present in that mm. the, it's completely different scales of time. Yeah, I guess that's the nature of the time period that we're talking about, but also perhaps you know the speed at which things happen today versus back then. I mean, obviously the spread of coronavirus from east to west took place in a matter of weeks, whereas back then it was it was a kind of years long process. Um, and I guess the same thing goes with the recovery to to a certain degree. But then also inevitably it's it relates to the fact that we're living through this at the moment. Is it possible to say when the recovery from the Black Death did end? I mean, as I mentioned in, in the introduction, there were repeated outbreaks for, for the following 300 years. I agree with Eleanor there because one of the reasons for the Peasants' Revolt is the Black Death because the population is so suppressed, but taxation demands don't go away because England continues to want to continue its war with France. And it's the taxation, the poll taxes of a very small populace that, that, that generates this huge uprising. And also people have perhaps got used to more freedom since the, the Black Death that they want to retain. So that's why we link the two things. But you're quite right, there's a long distance between the two. 
And the problem is, as you say, when do we get out of the, of the problems caused by the Black Death? I mean, it's many, many years because it keeps coming, I mean, hundreds of years, you know. I was looking earlier and, and the, the population in 1450, which is 100 years later, could be under 2 million. So in a sense, it's still getting smaller. Every time the Black Death comes back, they call it the children's plague because it takes away the people who haven't survived it the first time. They may have some immunity, whereas the second, when it comes again, it takes away the young people. So as a sense, there's no establishment of growth until about, you know, hundreds of years later that takes you back to a time when you can start getting a positive economic um, growth spurt. If, if I can just chip in with that, the population of England does not recover its pre-Black Death level until the early 18th century. So if that's recovery, it takes centuries. In terms of epidemics of plague not causing substantial disruption, it's not really until the 1370s that communities show much fewer signs of obvious and distress and disruption. In that sense, they seem to be coping, not recovering, but coping. In terms of the main social and economic changes, the structural changes working through, I think the 1390s is the time when English economy and society settles eventually into some kind of post-plague equilibrium. As Adrian says, it's this, the population and the economy are still living with it for the next two to three centuries, but the main effects have worked through by the middle of the 1390s. And I think also, Mark, just to add to that, is that you, you get this idea of some cultural revival with Chaucer and other people at this time as well. And also the use of English language, I think, building up as time. So it's taken that amount of time to try and gain new things. And perhaps you're getting new things in not just in social and economic ways, but actual cultural advance, perhaps, at this time. Chaucer, Langland, Gower, through the greatest poets in English history, are all writing and, and are highly productive in the 1370s, 80s and 90s. They are dealing with the social ideological consequences of the changes that have taken place. It gives them a wonderful source of material as society tries to establish what the implications of all of the changes that we've described are for the old estates ideology, old notions of what the common good were and the common profit, which were ossified in the Statute of Labourers, which is to protect it for landlords, it's changed completely by the 1390s. And the work of Chaucer and Garen Langland are part of a huge social debate, racked by anxiety to try and understand what is the meaning of society in the wake of this. Wow, I mean, it's an awful thing, but it's also, I guess, a silver lining for us today to look forward to, in a way, to that cultural outpouring. There's bound to be some incredible output off, off the back of this crisis. Thank you all so much for a really fascinating discussion and just really interesting insights into what went on in the 14th century and onwards and some really interesting lessons as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Eleanor Russell from the University of Cambridge, Mark Bailey from the University of East Anglia, and Adrian Bell from Henley Business School at the University of Reading. We'll be back next week with part two of the series, which tells the story of how Lisbon recovered from a devastating earthquake that almost totally destroyed the Portuguese capital in 1755. 
In the meantime, you can read lots more about the Black Death recovery on theconversation.com, all written by academic experts. The Anthill is a podcast from The Conversation. Our mission is to democratise knowledge. We are a registered charity, carry no advertising and have no commercial interests. If you like what we do and consider it valuable to society, you might like to consider donating via donate.theconversation.com forward slash UK. This episode of The Anthill is produced by Josephine Lethbridge, Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.